Our scripture today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you and praise you for your word. And sometimes it conveys and contains messages that are difficult to hear and hard to understand. Enlighten us, Lord. Reveal your way in your word to us this morning, we pray. And Lord, that truly is our prayer, that you would be at the center of all that we do, that you would be glorified in us. I pray that as I share your word with your people, that they would... Um, receive what's true from your, from your word, despite my own inadequacies and shortcomings. Lord, we desire that your gospel would shine clear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, you know, we have a complicated relationship with laws, don't we? That's one way of putting it. Um, on the one hand, we value laws as helping to establish a peaceful and productive society. Um, we're a nation of laws. But on the other hand, we assume that anything within 10 to 12 miles over the speed limit is just fine, <laughs> along with rolling stops at stop signs or stop lights, blocking the box if you've had to drive in a city and people do that. It's the most annoying thing in the world. We think those things are just fine. Um, we like laws when they serve our comfort and convenience um, and our security and our purposes, but we tend to bend them to the point of breaking uh, when they get in the way and we find them inconvenient. There are some laws we wish would just go away, like tax laws. Sorry, it's that time of year, isn't it? Now, my goal isn't to make anyone feel guilty about the way they drive or fearful about taxes coming up, but I do want you to reflect on your relationship today with God's law, his commands. Do you say in your heart what David said? Oh, Lord, how I love your law. On it I meditate day and night. Or does it feel oppressive and limiting, a little bit scary? Regardless, I want you to hear in full the very hard but rich words of Jesus when he said he came not to abolish the law and prophets, but to fulfill them. Now, Jesus isn't talking about traffic laws or tax laws. He's talking about God's law, his commands in his word. And it's a whole lot more challenging than obeying the speed limit. As we look at this hard teaching, like I said at the beginning of this series, I don't want to explain it away and um, subject this passage to death by a thousand nuances. Instead, I hope to open it up to you in a way that both comforts with gospel grace 
and challenges with the true cost of discipleship. I want you to hear good news and hear hard news. What I believe Jesus has for us in this passage is a costly invitation to the good life in him, the flourishing life in God's world by his word. What I want you to see is that Christ Jesus fulfills all of God's promises to us so that, for a purpose, so that we might follow him from the heart by embracing his law of love. Jesus fulfills all God's promises to us that we might follow him in heartfelt obedience. You know, the first verse in our passage is one of the hardest teachings of Jesus and one of the most significant for understanding his mission. He said, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This verse is so rich that I honestly could spend a couple weeks just unpacking this one verse. But I want to boil it down for you uh, today and just focus on three words. Really one phrase and, and one word. Law and prophets and fulfilled. Those words are loaded with meaning and significance for us as we try to figure out what Jesus has to say. The phrase law and prophets, it refers to so much more than the Ten Commandments we think of uh, when we think of God's law. Um, it even refers to so much more than the full, uh, the full law of God in the Old Testament. The phrase law and prophets is an abbreviated way of referring to the entire Old Testament. Um, everything in your Bible that happens before Matthew. And so it's this big chunk. It's like three quarters of your Bible um, is what Jesus is referring to by this statement, law and prophets. Um, the Hebrew scriptures from Genesis to, to Malachi. The Hebrew word for law. So New Testament is written in Greek. Jesus' um, words are recorded in Greek, and it uses the word nomos to refer to law. Um, but that's actually a translation of a Hebrew word, Torah. Torah. The Hebrew word for law is Torah. And the word for prophets is Nuvi'im. Together with the Kutuvim, which is the other part of the Old Testament scripture, they make up the entirety of the Old Testament scripture. The um, Jews would refer to the Old Testament, to, to their Bible, as the Tanakh, which is a, an acrostic. T is for Torah, N is for Nuvi'im, the prophets, and uh, K is for Kutuvim, or the writings, uh, the histories. So in this general statement, Jesus makes a claim bigger than we might immediately think. When he says, I've come not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. The Torah was not merely the law. It wasn't just the Ten Commandments and the stuff that is kind of uh, an expansion of the Ten Commandments that's in the Old Testament. Um, it was the entirety of the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy. What we call the Pentateuch, or literally the five books it's like if our Constitution in the United States contained not just the framework for our system of government, but the entire story of America's founding, and you were expected to believe all of it and hold it all as true. So it's the story plus the commands. It's all of it. Um, so Jesus is making a really big statement. It's not just God's laws. It's the story of God's relationship with his people. It includes the account of creation, of God making a covenant relationship with his people through Abraham and his family. And then the Torah, it culminates in the exodus from slavery in Egypt and God giving his law to Moses 
and promising them a homeland. That's what these first five books are all about. The Torah is no mere legal code. It's the story of God's covenant, his mighty acts of salvation in history. It includes not only the responsibilities that God's people have toward him, the law, it also includes the promises of God to his people and the reminder that he would be faithful. That means a lot when we think about what it means for for Jesus to say, I fulfilled the Torah. It's not just the law, it's also God's promises. Jesus fulfills both law and promises. Now, the Nevi'im, the prophets, they included the former prophets, which are the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. Uh, We're going through 1 Samuel right now in our men's Bible study. It's it's a prophetic book. uh, Before, it's a history book. Um, And in it, God promised um, David, uh, the, the, the king after God's own heart for Israel, that he would have an eternal throne, which is fulfilled in Jesus. He's the king in the line of David. Last summer, we looked at uh, the books of First and Second Kings and the stories of Elijah and Elisha and God's amazing work in redeeming and saving his people through them. We looked at how Elijah and Elisha were like pictures of Jesus in advance. They pointed to his character and his perfect ministry years later. Then there were the later prophets in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and the others, the minor prophets. That, and what they did is they prophesied to God's people before they went into exile in Babylon. It was in this time when the nation was declining. The kings were becoming more and more wicked. They were descending into chaos. And they prophesied that God's people would go into exile in Babylon. They'd have to live in these sewer region, regions of the, of the city, the canal region in Babylon, and they'd be deprived of their homeland but they also prophesied that they would be brought back, that they would return. Um, And so they gave the promise that God would bring them home. But not only that, Jeremiah also said when he brought them home, he'd make a new covenant relationship with them. So when Jesus says, I came not to abolish the Torah and the prophets, but to fulfill them, He's saying the story from the beginning, it was all about me. I'm the goal of all of it. For him to fulfill the Torah and the prophets means that he accomplishes their entire purpose. He is what every redemptive act of God in history points toward. And he is the final yes to all of God's promises in Scripture He's saying, it is me through whom all of God's covenant promises are fulfilled, every one of them. And you know, it's so much fun to just break this down and, say, and, and showcase how amazing this is, to, to display the riches of the statement. Jesus is saying, I am the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent, of Satan himself, destroy the power of sin and death. That's a reference to Genesis 3 and the original curse of sin. Jesus is saying, I am the true Israel, the one through whom all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. That's his promise to Abraham in the book of Genesis chapter 12 and 22. Jesus is saying, I am the one who frees my people, not from captivity in Egypt, but from the enslaving power of sin and death. The Exodus pointed forward to what Jesus would do on the cross. 
Jesus is saying, I am the one who fulfills the promise of a permanent homeland found in Deuteronomy 6. Through inaugurating the kingdom of heaven in his own coming, his death, and his resurrection. The true homeland of God's covenant people, whose builder and founder is God, not an earthly city, but a heavenly one, to quote Hebrews. Jesus is saying, I am the righteous one who keeps God's law that the, that the Father gave through Moses at Mount Sinai in those tablets of stone that had the Ten Commandments on them. Who keeps it, though they could not. Jesus is saying, I am the one who brings my people home from exile in Babylon and in the world, for we are exiles too, church. To the heavenly kingdom I am building in my church of both Jew and Gentile as one through faith in me. That's what we see in the New Testament in Ephesians and elsewhere. When he says, I fulfill the Torah and the prophets, that's what he is saying. And it is a radical and amazing statement to hear. He's saying, I'm the one who fulfills all of this. Each and every promise, God's commitment to us. And each and every law, our obligation to God. It all is fulfilled in Jesus in Jesus and Jesus alone, every single promise of God in Scripture to us finds its yes, its amen, and its fulfillment. Fulfillment doesn't mean that its purpose is over. It means that in Jesus it's achieved its full meaning, its true meaning. It's like the dirty window covered by salt in your car has been cleaned and you can finally see the road with clarity. Make sure you fill your cars with windshield washer fluid that's got antifreeze in it. Yeah, Jesus is like that. The, the, the window is clear, and we can see his plan of redemption perfectly. Dr. Jonathan Pennington, a theologian writing on the Sermon on the Mount, who I've quoted from before, he summed it up well when he said, Jesus is bringing to completion all that, that God began to do in ancient times. You know, we shouldn't underestimate the significance of Jesus' claim in this first verse. And as an application, it, um, it should absolutely impact the way you read your Bibles, the way you study Scripture. Some of you probably have a little bit of difficulty knowing what to do with the Old Testament, with the first three quarters or two-thirds, whatever, of your Bible. Um, some of it feels a little detached from life and experience. It feels so arcane and so different from what the New Testament stories of Jesus are like. But if Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets... If God's covenant documents in the Old Testament find their ultimate meaning and purpose and value in him, it should shape how you read the Old Testament. And it opens up new vistas of beauty and truth about Christ and your relationship with him that you could not have seen elsewhere. It's not like the Old Testament is replaced by the new or that God somehow has two separate covenants, one with Old Testament Israel and one with the church. No, there is one covenant, one book, one people of God with Jesus at the center. Incidentally, that's one of the reasons that I, as your pastor, preach almost as often from the Old Testament as from the New. Because you don't first meet Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. We see him from Genesis to Revelation. The Bible is one unified true story pointing to Jesus. You know, one well-known evangelical pastor uh, in a book several years ago said that we should move on from the Old Testament and just be a purely New Testament church. 
because it's, it's a little passe, it's got some hard stuff in there, and we need to make it easier for people to embrace Jesus. That's nonsense and arrogance. Instead, I say to you that you cannot understand the new without the old, and you miss most of Jesus' story if you only start in Matthew. So after Jesus makes this amazing claim, which I hope you're able to see in its fullness now, claiming to be fulfilling all of Scripture. In verse 17, he turns specifically to the law, uh, the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Um, Jesus, later, as we go through this series on the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to see him unpack many individual ones of the Ten Commandments and, and expand them and expand their meaning. And so this is kind of the setup or introduction to that section of the, of the sermon. But later... He sums all of them up with these two statements. Love the Lord with uh, your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, at various points in Jesus' ministry, there were those who heard that and thought that he was teaching his disciples to disobey or ignore God's law. Um, the Pharisees and religious leaders uh, really didn't like him because they thought he was undermining God's law. Uh, Jesus' disciples, they picked food on the Sabbath because they were hungry. They were like walking through a field, and they picked some food, and the Pharisees said, look, your disciples are doing wickedness. It's, it's the Sabbath. They're not allowed to do this because we have had all of these rules and regulations regarding what you can and cannot do on the Lord's day, uh, a day set aside for rest. Likewise, Jesus healed people on the Sabbath, and they condemned him for healing people because it was work. They had their priorities backwards. In fact, Jesus criticized the Pharisees and scribes for the way they kept the law, so you can understand why they were critical of him. In a way, what Jesus does in this statement in verse 17 is say, you think I'm against God's law? Saying it doesn't matter? Oh, contraire, my friends. I actually care far more about it than you do. He says in verse 17, until heaven and earth disappear... Not a single letter, not a stroke of a pen of God's law will disappear. Now, what does this mean? You know, I remember struggling a lot with this passage when I was younger. The idea that God's law was a standard for me was scary. Because daily, I was confronted by the fact that I broke it a lot, all the time. I don't know if you've had that experience before. Maybe y'all are perfect, and I'm the only sinner in here. Um, but the idea that Jesus is establishing God's law as having continual validity for the church. It can be a little scary. How can Jesus be establishing the law, saying it's never going to disappear? Didn't Paul say he'd come to redeem me from the curse of the law? What about amazing grace? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's not amazing law, how oppressive the sound that condemned a wretch like me. It seemed like a contradiction for him to say what he says here and then for Paul to say that we're saved by grace alone and not works of the law. What gives? You know, I think our problem with understanding this is that we naturally tend to use the law like the Pharisees did. We're sinful human beings who want to be self-sufficient, and so we're a lot like the Pharisees. And they used the law in two very bad ways. First, we try to justify ourselves to God by it. And we do this sometimes without even realizing it. We overestimate our own goodness. We feel self-righteous when we have done a good job. 
And we think that that is credit to the Lord. In fact, we think we draw nearer to God the more good we do. And when we fall short, he's further from us. When actually the opposite is true. We talked about that in our new members class this morning. Um, it, it, you know, it's, so, so we either overestimate our own goodness or we reason away the law so that it becomes an easier standard to meet. So we, we either um, think we, we, we're blind to ourselves and we think we meet this high bar or we lower the bar so that what we're doing meets it. It's kind of like the speed limit, um, what we do with that. You know, the Pharisees did this. They made some rules easier, um, like the obligation to care for aging parents so that people could give more of their money to the church. They said, you don't have to give so much to your parents who are in need. Uh, you can instead give that money to the temple. Um, we don't ask you to do that here. In fact, we'd call you out if you were doing that here. Um, we are to care for our, our loved ones. Um, but then they would make some rules harder that were easier for them to meet, like Sabbath regulations. Um, they, they would make those, those harder and expand the rules. But the second bad way we use God's law is like a club to beat other people with. Um, because we think ourselves more acceptable to God, we look down on those who feel to meet our standards. Uh, perhaps it's with the homeless you see in downtown Reisterstown or Baltimore. Or perhaps it's your next door neighbor who plays his music too loud or doesn't mow his lawn often enough. We tend to look down on others about precisely the things we have the most sinful pride in. So the things we think we do really well, the things we think are to our credit, we tend to look down on others who don't meet our standard. That's the wrong way to use law. Or perhaps there's a child that's really struggling with making the right decisions in an area of life. We think by beating them down with the law, using it to shame them, that that will bring lasting change. But nothing could ever be further from the truth. Using the law to appear better than others just reveals that you're blind. You're blind. First of all, God's law as a standard of acceptance is never something we could meet. You can never meet the standard of God's perfect law. That's why Jesus had to keep it for us. One element of his fulfilling it is fulfilling our obligation to God. Paul says, by the works of the law, no one will be justified, Jew or Gentile. And because we could never keep it, we never have the right to use it as a club or a tool to separate ourselves from others who, who we think sin worse than us. Jesus himself did not do that. He ate with sinners and tax collectors and told the Pharisees that the prostitutes and tax collectors enter the kingdom of God before you. If we understand our own inability to measure up, the most Christian person in the world should be the most humble and the least judgmental. It's not that we don't clearly identify right and wrong, but we it's that we refuse to look down with arrogance on those who struggle to measure up because we are familiar with our own failure and the wonderful perfections of God. Christians should be the most humble and least judgmental. So the law isn't meant to be the thing that makes us acceptable to God. And it isn't something we're allowed to use against others. What does Jesus mean then when he said it won't pass away? What does it mean when he says that the one who keeps it is going to be greatest in God's kingdom, and the one who teaches others to disregard it will be the least well, there are three right uses of God's law. We talked about these in our new members class this morning as well. I'm just going to mention two of them and then really hang on the third one for a moment. First, God's law is like a curb. 
on the side of the road. It restrains evil like a curb restrains cars from going up onto your sidewalk or your front yard. It preserves peace in human relationships. Indeed, the Ten Commandments, they've been at the root of many systems of law in history. The second use is a mirror. When you look at God's law, you see its perfection and you see your own sin. And for the wise person, what does that do? It says, goodness, woe is me, I'm undone. I need a savior. It reveals our need of saving. So when we look into the perfect law of God, we see that we need Jesus. That's the second use of the law, a good use. Now, I don't think anyone here can read God's commands and think, oh yeah, I've got all that down. No, you all need Jesus. Hear that from me. You all need Jesus. <laughs> but the third use of the law is what Jesus has in mind here. It's an ongoing standard for a life pleasing to God and good for us. It is the blueprint of the good life, the true Christian life. You know, if we take a mod- an honest assessment of modern American evangelicalism, I think we'd be hard-pressed to see how... Um, I think we'd be hard-pressed to see the law being used consistently this way. I agree with a pastor named uh, John Mark Comer. He's a pastor out in Portland, Oregon. He recently said, the way the gospel has been preached in the West for a very long time, you can become a Christian without becoming a follower of Jesus himself. That's an indictment um, on a lot of modern Christianity. We love to preach grace, but it's a grace that doesn't change. It doesn't bring transformation or wholeness or new life. It's a grace that doesn't change us or call us to embrace the life of Christ Jesus. Can you look at the Sermon of the Mount honestly and say that that's what Jesus is calling us to? No, he's calling us to so much more. That kind of gospel is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer would call cheap grace when we're called to embrace the costly grace grace of following Jesus. Yet here we have Jesus calling his disciples to radical obedience. It's a way of life that is backwards and extreme in the eyes of the world. We talked about that when we looked at the Beatitudes from the beginning of this Sermon on the Mount. Beginning next week, we'll see how he takes several of the Ten Commandments and reinterprets them, applying them far more aggressively and expansively than the Pharisees did. When you read what he says in these verses that follow, you'll wonder, who could ever keep all this? But brothers and sisters, that's not the point. You see, our struggles with using the law rightly come because we want an external standard to measure ourselves by. But in fulfilling the law and prophets, what Jesus wants to do is make his law into an internal motivator to etch it onto your hearts, his law of love, that you might desire what is good and display his life to the world. That's where we come to the very last thing I briefly want to leave with you this morning, that we need Jesus to etch his law onto our hearts by faith. Do any of you recall when you came to faith in Jesus for the first time? For some of us, I can't remember a day when I didn't know the Lord. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful he's had a grip on my heart from the earliest days of my my recollection. But for some of you, that day is really stark, isn't it? You came to know Jesus and something changed dramatically in you. 
It's like a big line drawn in your life before Christ and after Christ. Uh, The Bible calls it moving from death to life. I would imagine if this is you, that you also experienced a big change. It's a different set of desires, an awareness that some of the things you did were not good, and an awareness that there was a lot of good that God had enabled you to do that you weren't doing. And you desired to go in that direction and to run from these other things, even though that was hard and you still felt the tug. You felt a longing to do what is right, even though it was hard. It's a lot like the story of John Newton, who was running his own way as a slaver on a slave ship. And then he met Jesus on the boat, and over the next few years, he learned to hate that sin and hate slavery, and to turn from his sin and turn towards Christ. He ended up becoming a pastor. In his own testimony, or we sing his own testimony when we sing the song, Amazing Grace, he said, I once was blind but now I see. You know, if this is your story, if you see that big line drawn in your life before Christ and and after, you've already experienced what Jesus is talking about in this sermon. That coming to know him, that loving his law is about a heartfelt internal obedience, the reorientation of our desires and our longings toward God and his kingdom rather than being away from it. It's not an external obedience he is seeking. It is an internal pull of the heart towards the Lord. He came to etch his law onto our hearts. The Old Testament passage that best explains what Jesus is doing in this section of the Sermon on the Mount is Jeremiah 31, 33. It's the promise of the new covenant that I mentioned earlier. In it, God says, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. That's what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, I fulfill the Torah and the prophets. And he calls them to obey it. The way Jesus establishes the law isn't by making an even harder external standard to measure up to, but by taking his external standard and writing it on our hearts by his spirit, helping us to long for what is good and to hate what is evil, that we might do what is right and grow in what is good and delight in the God who loves us. And the good news, brothers and sisters, is that if you have already come to faith in Christ, you've already experienced this. You don't need to be afraid when Jesus says, not a, not a little stroke of a pen of the law will disappear. And that's good news for you because it means he's going to write it on your heart. And he's going to help you follow him and enjoy him and live the life he has prepared for you by writing on your heart his perfect law of love. It's what his spirit does in us. It's why the final statement of Jesus isn't that hard to accept. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, the people hearing that would have said, whoa, whoa, who can be saved? I mean, these are the amazing, these these are the cream of the crop. These are the perfect people. And I'm nothing like them. How could I possibly be saved if they can't, if we have to exceed them? But we shouldn't react that way if you know Jesus. In Matthew 23, Jesus calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs 
who are clean on the outside but dead on the inside. They've used the law as an external standard and they've conformed their behaviors to it without their hearts ever being changed by God's kindness and grace. The greater righteousness is not outward perfection, but a growing obedience from the heart that comes from having God's spirit in us by faith. A righteousness founded on spirit-wrought love for God and neighbor, not vain attempts to measure up to a law that remains outside of us. Brothers and sisters, we have nothing to fear from God's law. If you are in Christ Jesus, it has been kept for you by Christ, period. He kept the law, but died to pay the price of your sin and rose to give you his life and perfection. You have it through faith. It cannot be taken away. But if you've trusted Jesus by faith, he longs for you to share in his joy by embracing God's law of love from the heart. It is how you live the fullness of the life that he has prepared for you. How you live matters. It displays the reality of your life, of of your faith, and showcases the transforming power of the gospel for all to see. It's not what saves you, but it is what a person who has been made alive by Christ Jesus will look like. The righteousness of the law, um, the righteousness that the law demands, he gives, and the obedience the law compels, he produces. He works in us to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Brothers and sisters, embrace God's law and join with David in saying, O Lord, how I love your law. Follow him and find fullness and flourishing of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you. We thank you for the goodness and perfection of your law. We thank you that you've kept it for us, but we also, Lord, thank you that you have made it the standard of a life that is pleasing to you. Write it on our hearts. Not that we might be superior to our neighbors, but that we might serve them fully as you have served us. Help us to love you and love our neighbor wholeheartedly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.